So, turn your Bible to John chapter 8, we're at the very last verse of chapter 7, uh, the verse 53, down to verse 11, chapter 8. And so, we'll give you some background information once we get into the sermon about this text, because like I said, this is sort of an outlaw text in a sense, and we'll cover that in a few minutes, but what... Who or what comes to mind when you hear the word outlaw? Right? What, you, know, you, may, you may have an idea of, of people. Um, Billy the Kid, Bonnie and Clyde, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy. Right? Those are outlaws. Right? Now even some other people like Zorro or Robin Hood, they were also looked at as outlaws as well, but they are also doing um, good things. Right? They were doing good things occasionally. Right? So... So that's what it looks like. So the definition of an outlaw is a person who has broken the law, especially one who remains at large or is a fugitive. Other, other words for this are brigands. And that's kind of a fun word. I like the word brigands. But anyway, or outcasts. Right? So these are the people that are outside the law. They're, they're looking for them. And so I watched a movie the other day called Outlaw King. And it's about Robert the Bruce. So he's the king of Scots, and so if you've seen William Wallace, or Braveheart, if you've seen Braveheart, he's in the William Wallace story, and he actually betrays him, I think, at Falkirk. Um, but then later he feels guilty about it, essentially, and he realizes that King Edward does not have the best interest of Scotland in mind, so he, even though he swears an oath to Edward, saying, I'm never going to fight against you, this, that, and the other, Edward keeps being terrible, towards the Scottish people. And so, Robert the Bruce, or Robert Bruce, he's known, that's kind of his last name. Him and his followers become outlaws because, by the king's decree because he rebels against the king because they're not going to tolerate what the king of England was doing to him and his people. You know, high taxes, all this other stuff like that. And so he is, he's labeled an outlaw. So he goes through all the stuff, and, and you know this, the movie's sort of the last part where he becomes king of Scotland and and fights this final battle. We'll talk about towards the end of the sermon. So I'm not here to glorify actual criminals. I want to make sure we we're clear on that, right? I mean, you should not be Bonnie and Clyde, Butch Cassidy, or you know Cattle Russells, or even Billy the Kid, maybe. Even though Billy the Kid's sort of in that gray area, right? Of doing certain things that were sort of for the right reasons, kind of, sort of, but then he liked it too much, I think is what happened. But So I'm not, I'm not here glorifying criminals, but there are situations where being an outlaw is important because we need to, the people who are enforcing the laws are not, you know, even though they have authority, quote-unquote, they don't have the right reasons, they're not doing things for the right motives, right? So even, even Christianity, especially in, its, in some countries, it is outlawed to be a Christian, for the couple hundred years initially of, of Christianity, its inception, it was also minimum tolerated by the Romans. At certain points, it was, it was technically outlawed as well. So if you were a Christian, you were an outlaw. So we have this history of doing this stuff. So everything about this text, though, screams outlaws because everyone is pointing at each other, saying, like, we caught her. But they, Jesus knows that they weren't doing the right thing the way they did it with the legal, legal system, essentially. And this text itself is one of the two texts that show up with, with 
concerning footnotes in your Bible, right? So it says, like, I'll read it right here. A lot of them kind of say the same thing. The earliest MSS or manuscript, that's what MSS stands for, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So what are we supposed to do with it? How did it get here? Did some guy just slap it in there last week before they printed this Bible? Whatever it was, no. So we'll talk about this, but the other text is the longer ending of Mark. Right, so you, a lot of times in Mark it starts, stops at 16.8, and then 9 through 20 is, is sort of a tack on, and they think it's more of a summary when we covered Mark, right? It's sort of a, somebody's like, we can't just let Mark end like this, we need to have an extra piece to this, right? And so they sort of explain things by taking other in, information. And so we're going to look at how this, so we're going to spend a few minutes after we read the text, going over the, the talking about the transmission or how we got the text itself, and then we're going to talk about what the text means. Because anybody who's anybody, probably even if you're not a Christian, knows this story. And that's kind of the thing with this story. It's interesting because everybody knows it. Whether you're a Christian or not, everybody knows, especially the famous line that Jesus says. It's just like outlaws. Everybody knows who Billy the Kid is. Everybody knows who you know, Robin Hood is. Right? We know these, these things. So we're going to look at it because this text still can teach us things. And the text is valid and it's, it's legitimate. So by the way, so I'll just say it like that. So let's go ahead and read John chapter... Uh, we're going to start in 7.53 and go to 8.11. It's the whole story. And so this is kind of the close-up. It says, Then each one went to his house. And this is what, after, after chapter 7. So it's nighttime or whatever. Everybody goes home. But Jesus once went to the Mount of Olives. That's verse 53. And so verse 2 or 1 says, At dawn he went to the temple again. So Jesus. And all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Right, they're not asking like, hey, join us. They're saying, how are you going to rule on this? Right, that's what, that's what, so what do you say means? Right, so what do, you, what do you think about this, Jesus? What should we do? And they asked this, John tells us, they asked us to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. This is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. So they think, anyway. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you, you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he, so he, Jesus, was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Clearly, because she, she was not hit with stones. No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Right, so that is the story. That's the text that we have here. And so there's a lot of stuff going on. So again, first we're going to talk about... So here's the main idea for this part. Is that Jesus demonstrates that He is the righteous judge by dealing with the Pharisees and the woman. Now, he's dealing with both groups of people. Because if you, when we, if you remember from last week, or if you go back and reread chapter 7, He's talking about being a righteous judge and all this other stuff. So all this stuff flows together. So that's why we have this text that some people think, well, it just was stuck in there. But I think whoever edited it or whoever was there, or if John wrote it initially, and maybe it got torn off or whatever, it's put in the right place because it flows with the argument of chapter 7. And this is sort of the 
if this, if chapter seven, the bigger part is like the theory or the teaching, this is the actual like application on how you carry this out. Right. So this is how we can learn. This is kind of our illustration or Jesus' illustration for this part. So here's our some background information. Again, I talked about it. You may have brackets in your Bible or may say, you know, you may have a, like these two lines like I have on mine, depending on how you have it. Some like the NASB is more of a footnote. So you got like might have two little stars and it might be on the bottom there. It says the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Kind of depends on what version you have on how they do it. Some of them might just have two little brackets, one at the beginning and one at the end. But anyway, they're set off a little bit. And so what does this mean, though, that they're not found in the earliest manuscripts? And so, again, does somebody just stick it in there? No, probably not. So all of the manuscripts we have, no Eastern church father commenting on John makes any mention of the story during the first nine centuries of the Christian era, right? So the Eastern church, so like the Greek, the Greek side or the, you know, the Eastern side of everything... They didn't really talk about this, and we had Patrick and I were talking about this morning. Nobody really comments on this on the eastern side of the Christian religion, Christianity, for like a thousand years almost. But in the West, so, so Rome and this going this way towards us, during the first three centuries, there is a situation that wasn't much different than this already mentioned. So there's stories like this floating around the Christian traditions from the time of John all the way up to, you know, mid-third century, third century or so. And so by the third and fourth century, though, this story found its way into the Codex Beza, which is one of the larger texts that gets used to make your Bibles. You know, everything gets kind of looked at. And then it gets later, in, it, later it gets into a number of later Greek and old Latin manuscripts. So this, we're not talking like this was found in, like, 1782 or something like that, and they just decided to stick it in the Bible, Right? There's 1611 with the King James. It's, it's, this has been around for a while. So when they say the earliest manuscripts, our manuscripts, the best ones we have are starting somewhere around the, the, third, the 300s, the 400s, you know, 3rd, 4th century, or 4th and 5th century, that type of stuff, right? So there's scraps of other stuff, and this kind of goes back to the, our Bible study a few months ago about how we got the Bible and everything else, right? So we have all these documents, and they're all collated, and they compare them so whatever we have for a certain text, they compare all of them and say, okay, this is what we're pretty sure the text is actually original. Because remember, the churches were free to have their own Bibles, essentially, because we were pocketed, right? So just, just like our area here, we have probably, what, 20 or 30 Baptist churches in Santa Barbara County or in maybe a part of Slow County. We're all far enough, work, far enough apart where it's not super easy to go to Napomo to their Baptist church and say, hey, what do you guys have? Right? That's a, that, that would be a walk right? if you didn't have a car or anything. So we would develop our own text. And so when they collated with the Bibles and said, okay, this is what the actual books are going to be, part of the criteria was which ones are most common, which books are most common to all the churches. So if... If, you know, First Baptist Church of Lompoc is using some crazy book, they're like, well, you're the only one in the whole county using this. We're not, we're not using it, right? Or maybe, hey, maybe we should use it, right? So there's different ways to do this. And so, so Didymus the Blind, there's a similar story from him, from Didymus the Blind in the 4th century, so the 300s, right? But again, it's not the exact passage. But again, there's enough similarities in these passages, these stories that have this. And so a few other ancient writers also have similar stories, and so again, this tradition has kept this story alive. And so this is where this tradition is important for us because the people who were closest to everything going on are the people we should trust the most. 
because they're the ones keeping it and they, they were making the rulings on what was important and what wasn't. And so again, this probably, per, when it shows up in the 3rd century, the 4th century, probably coincides when everything started to become legalized. Christianity moved from being outlaw to in the law and said, okay, we need to start formalizing certain things, so we need to have the books. And so some of this leads experts to believe that this, at the very least, the situation in which the woman, the Pharisees, and Jesus most definitely happened. Right? They say, look, this story happened, John wrote it down, or somebody wrote it down, and it ended up getting in the book. Again, there's a similar situation, and some people may think this story actually fits better in Luke, which is, you know, whatever, but we have it in John. So some people think Luke wrote it. But there are grammatical similarities, and this is important, right? There are grammatical similarities to other parts of John, certain phrasings, that lend itself to being John's work, right? So this is super nerdy, and you're probably like, okay, let's get to the point, right? But the point is that the tradition of the text belonging where it is is trustworthy, right? The text is trustworthy because ultimately God is the author of the book, and he would not allow anything that he did not want in his book to be in there. Right? So that is the overall point of this little this subsection. Right? This, the tradition, this is where the tradition helps us understand what's what. Right? This, is, this, is, this is important for us to understand. So when people say, well, this isn't even biblical. It is biblical because it's in the Bible and it was put there. In the 300s, which is way far away from here very much closer to the original writings, right? So it's, it's there, and it's there for a reason. And so it also fits very well in the story because the Pharisees are trying to trap or trick Jesus. And a few verses before that, you can see they're starting to plot. They're starting to plot against Jesus already because he now is becoming dangerous. And so this is the point of this. So, so they are going to try to trick him, and especially in chapter... And it fits in with John 7, 24, when he says, Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. Right? Because the Pharisees just grabbed this lady out of wherever and said, Oh, oh she's cheating on her husband. Right? And Nicodemus says, Hey, wait a minute. In John 7, 51, he says, Wait a minute. Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing. Does it? So Nicodemus is trying to be that fair, that lawyer for Jesus, and they're like, no, we're going we're gonna to hammer him. We're, we're going to prosecute him to no end. And that's what we see here. And so this thing that they're setting up here is a fake trial, essentially, which would foreshadow the last trial of Jesus. They're going to do whatever they can to throw Jesus out. Whatever they can, and they've already started. This is a couple years before, you know, before Jesus' final week. They're going to accuse either Jesus of either remaking the Hebrew law, right, or not being as nice or as graceful as he was pretending to be. Right? It's a, a lose-lose for Jesus, so they think, right? Because that's how we think. It's very binary, one or the other. Either way, the Pharisees would have proof that Jesus was an outlaw. All right, so let's get into the text now. So we already read it. So John tells us that it's another day from whatever Jesus was teaching in chapter 7. It's a new day now starting in chapter 8. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and he comes back in to go teach again. And so people are like, oh, Jesus is teaching. Church time, let's go see what he's talking about. Because people apparently didn't have jobs or whatever. So they just come and like, hey, let's sit down. I mean, maybe it's more important. Like, this is more important to listen to Jesus than it is to go work. Totally valid reason. But lo and behold, right here comes the scribes and the Pharisees. 
and they're not alone. And I imagine she's probably not really co- cooperating with them, right? Like, I'm not coming with you. I'm, you're going to drag me. So there may have been some dragging her through the street here to get them, get her to this crowd. And they throw her into the middle of the crowd, essentially. Like, here, you need to be here. And look, here, we're going to start this trial. And so the text says she was caught in the act of, the act of adultery. Which seems a little odd if they caught her in the act of cheating on her husband or whoever it was, and maybe the man was cheating on his wife, but yet it's only the woman in the story here. There's no man with her. Maybe he was too fast. I don't know. But it's important for us to back up a second for the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. So we know who the Pharisees are. They're, they're kind of the religious people. They're the priests of the church people. You know? But the scribes, they were a little bit more like lawyers or theologians. Right? So they were more the academic people. They were keeping track and examining the law of Moses. Right? They were going through and making sure that, okay, this says this, and so here it is, and we should do this or that. Right? So they're probably, they would be advising the Pharisees as how to proceed on a certain case or not if somebody brought something to them. You know, so they were looking at every word, making sure everything was legitimate. And so the question would be, though, for me, is that if the scribes and the Pharisees were really so concerned about the law, they were so concerned about a real legal trial, again, first part, where was the man? Adultery is a two-part crime. Like in the military, if you're trying somebody for adultery, you have to basically have proof that they were having intercourse. Like legitimate proof before you can actually bring that up. That's why it doesn't get tried very often, because it's very difficult to get that kind of proof. So here they say they caught him in the act, but it seems a little odd to me because what are you door knocking on people that you hope you find somebody in the house at the right time? Or maybe they had some other information or maybe it was all a setup. Maybe they were willing to kill this innocent woman just to make a point. I don't know. Or they're probably going to stop anything that would happen to make themselves look like heroes before anything actually happened so she wasn't actually going to die either way. But either way, they're using, if they're using her as a pawn, that's just bad enough anyway. Because again, part of it is the man, he's not there, so you already have only one party of this crime anyhow. But either way, the people who know the law should know that and probably be like, wait, we don't have enough proof because we don't have the other party. So we really can't proceed, but we're going to anyway. And if you ever watch a lot like law TV shows, a lot of times, right, the, the cops will bust somebody and the DA's like, we're not prosecuting because we don't have enough proof, right? They don't want to go to trial they run the risk of anything not working out in their favor. So that's why a lot of times you hear that they're not going to prosecute somebody because they don't have enough proof or they're not super confident they're going to be able to say this person's guilty. So they're just like, well, we either keep looking at it or we're just going to kind of let it slide or get them on a lesser charge, whatever it is. So the Pharisees and scribes levy the charges against this woman and they remind Jesus of the obligation of the law that she must be stoned. And we're not giving too many details and so this may have some imply some background information for the Jews or understanding the law, but this most likely comes from Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24, and it should be on the screen. It says, If a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If there is a young woman who is a virgin engaged to a man, another man encounters her in the city and sleeps with her, take the two of them out of the, the gate of the city to stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's fiance. You must purge the evil from you. So there's the law. It's got conditions that must be met, just like if you're on jury duty. Right? They read the, the charges to you in the law, and they say, they must meet all of these 
criteria to be guilty of whatever the, the, the crime is. And if you don't meet those things, then they're not guilty. Right? That's basically how the law works. Now there's obviously nuance to that, but that's pretty much how it works. And again, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says similar things. It says, If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery to his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Right, so they have some legal standings, but again, what's the case? If the man and the woman, they, most, they both must be put to death. So is it legally correct to just try the one and not the other? I don't know. And since they didn't read the verses word for word, they were probably just hoping that Jesus knew the gist of it, right? Because we're really good at knowing the idea, but maybe not the actual wording. So, and that's usually okay for most things, but, you know, the technicalities of it all is they're looking to see if maybe he just knows the gist and not the specifics, that he would say, go ahead and stone her. She's obviously guilty. I'd be like, ha ha, we don't have the man. You can't try her. It's illegal. You're terrible. You don't know the law. You're a bad teacher. Right? That's what they were looking for. Because he would be in violation of establishing her true guilt and disregarding the letter of the law. But you see, Jesus knows the law because he's God's word. So what do we do with this, though? So here's, here's our application that I, I kind of figured out last night or yesterday. What are your motivations for questioning God? Right? Because we do this. We, set, we try to set traps for God. I've done it. Right? I've done it before. All right, God, if you're there, if you want me to do this, make this happen. If you want me to do that, do this, and then I'll do that, right? We, we are getting ourselves in these bargains. We're really kind of questioning, are you really there? Are you really who you say you are, right? And this is, it's okay, we've done this. Because we try to do this, and we try to devise these situations to trap God into revealing himself as something other than who he is. Right? We try to get him to say it was something that goes against his character, and we try to be smart and we think we know the law. We think how things work in the world. We say, God, I'll go to church if you show me a sign or I'll tithe more money if I get that job. Right? We're trying to bargain with him and say, all right, if you're really a good God, you'll give me that job because you want more money. Right? God doesn't need your money. And if you're bartering that way to give a sacrifice, that's not what you, your, your heart's in the wrong place. Your motivations are wrong. Now, asking, asking God for a good job or a better job is not wrong. I'm not going to say that. But if you tack on the extra part of that, you're jumping off into the deep end of wrong water, wrong territory, right? And so it's kind of important for us to understand the other gods and the other societies that were around Israel. They were fickle. The way the other people looked at the gods were they were basically just people who had special powers or jobs. Like Baal was a, was a weather and crops god, so like we're all, a lot of people are farmers around here, so Baal, we need water. Give us water. Give us rain. Things like that. And we see how that works in, in, in the Old Testament. And so Jupiter moving into the Roman superstructure here that was over all of Israel's, Israelite society for the most part. So they worshipped Jupiter, who was a sky god. The Romans believed that he oversaw all aspects of life. So he was kind of the, the chief god or the lord of lords, essentially, though they would look at it. So he was equated to Zeus in the Greek hierarchy as well. But he also concentrated on protecting the Roman state. So he was Rome's god, essentially. And so military commanders would pay homage to Jupiter at his temple after winning in battle, right? They're like, you, you hooked us up, so here's your, here's your calf, here's your money, here's whatever it is. So that's how gods worked. In the, old, in the ancient world of what people thought about them. 
If I give you stuff, you'll give me stuff. But we have to guard against this idolatry from turning away from the one true God and go looking for other things to fulfill our needs when we think God can't or won't or didn't. Right? Just like that job. Well, God, you must not want me to be happy. That job would have made me happy. We could have moved. We could have done this. I had more money. We could do that. We could go on vacation. We could do whatever. All these things that you must hate me, God. You must not want me to have that thing. And that's not the case at all. There's probably, maybe there's somebody that you don't need to be around there. Maybe he needs you wherever you're at now to do the job of preaching the gospel. Because that's what we're there for. Any place he puts us, we're there to preach the gospel. We're there to tell people about Christ, whether just in words or even sometimes deeds, right? Just, just that we tell them that this is who a Christ-like person should be. And so while people didn't give offerings to hope their God of choice would do what the person asked, God is not interested in your stuff and He never has been. The law was set up to illustrate their need for a Savior that God would provide. And here He is now on earth. Jesus is now here in, this, in, our, in, our, in what we're at in the, in the Gospels. God is here. He is fulfilling the law. He is there. And He would provide the sacrifices and offerings and so those other sacrifices and offerings that we have in the Old Testament, they were a way to keep the people in good standing until the time that the Savior would come. But all of that made, that whole system was still made to work and function because of God's grace. God's grace was still functioning in the Old Testament just as much as the New Testament. And I think it's something that's lost on anything because, again, it's not just the fact that you give me a bunch of grain and I'm happy now. It's the fact that you're taking something from yourself and giving it to God because that's what He wants. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you to do the act. And that's the important part. And again, He's happy with that act because that's what the part of His grace is to say, okay, that's what I want. Because what God wants from you and me is a contrite heart, right? So David in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 18, he says, You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. Listen, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. He wants you to come to Him because He says He will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. That is what the Old Testament is still about just as much as the New Testament. There's no difference. There's no different God. There's no different people. He didn't grow up. And David says this. He says, In your good pleasure cause Zion to prosper and build the walls of Jerusalem. Right, so... That is what it is. He wants us to come to Him because we need Him. And so Jesus gives Himself freely and He wants us to do the same to accept that gift of grace. So I heard something this week when I was re doing some research about this. Said, the question was, where or when does God show up in your life? Right, we're always looking for stuff. And so the answer the guy gave was, He shows up at the end of your rope. When you are at the end of your rope, that's when God shows up. Because until then, until you get to the end, you think you can still make it. Right? Oh, I still got another foot. I'm good. Don't worry. I don't need your help. I'm good. I'll climb back up. <laughs> Down it has six inches. I'm still good. Don't worry. Right? You got like a hand, a hand's breadth width, right? So two or three inches left of that rope. Like, oh, 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 I need help. Where are you at, God? He says, all right, fine. Right? That's where he's at because we finally realize, because we know there is nothing else below us. But God is there to catch us and he'll pick us up. But that's the thing, we, we think that we're still good if we have a little bit of that rope left. 
Now, as we grow up and get mature in Christ, we can start realizing that that's not any fun, right? Who wants to live like that all the time? I still get there. I know that. But I try not to because I know it's not fun. It's too stressful. Stressful on you. Stressful on everybody else. But when you have a broken spirit and you can't continue on with yourself or by yourself, God steps in to take you the rest of the way and He gets you where He needs to go or where you need to go. And this is done because He renders a graceful verdict. And so we see, come back into the text, Jesus was sitting down teaching. He's sitting down teaching these people and then when the people show up, eventually He stands up. He stands up and he stoops down to write something on the ground. And so no one knows what's written. Right? This is kind of like the great mystery of, 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 of the Bible in a sense. John doesn't tell us. Nobody knows. Maybe it's not important. Maybe it is. So in the movies, since we were talking about movies earlier before, before church, right? This is, called, this is what's called a MacGuffin. So the term is, is essentially something that moves the, the story along. So it's a treasure or a briefcase that everyone is after, but you never actually see it. They just talk about it. And so everybody's looking to get this thing, but nobody ever sees it or maybe nobody ever gets it. Right? For instance, the Maltese Falcon is a MacGuffin. The Death Star plans are considered a MacGuffin for the most part. Because we know what happens with those plans, and they really fixed it, so you can watch Rogue One and know that. But, but for the first part of it, there is, that's just kind of that one thing. That's the whole impetus for the movie. And so we have these things here because this is what moves the story along because whatever it is upsets them enough where they start getting nervous. And if you ever notice, when you get nervous, people keep talking. So they ask him again, hey, what are you going to do? But here's some, here's some ideas maybe of what Jesus was writing down perhaps that kind of fit the text and kind of fit the situation. So one, one thought maybe that was Jeremiah 17, 13. And he wrote, Lord, the hope of Israel, who all will abandon you, will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Right? And so chapter 7, he's talking about being the living water. So here he is being the living water. They're abandoning him. And maybe he wrote their names in the ground. They don't want their, want their names written in the dirt either. Right? So that's one theory. Another theory may be the Exodus 23.1 says that you must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. So maybe he's writing us down to say, hey, I know what you guys are doing. You guys are lying. But maybe you want to rethink your plan. Right? And he didn't want to call them out maybe in front of everybody else. But that's what he was doing, right? Or maybe Exodus 23, 7 says, stay, stay far away from false accusations. Do not kill the innocent and the just because I will not justify the guilty. So all of these certainly fit, but we don't know, and maybe we're just reading too much into it. So, but in between his writings, Jesus is going to speak these words, and they've been portrayed in movies and paintings and writings and used by secular people to throw things right back in a righteous person's face. Right? He says, As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. But he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's kind of the other translation of it. And so these are probably a direct reference to Deuteronomy 13, 9, where it says, Instead, you must kill him. Your hand, this is somebody who's accusing the person, so your hand must be the first against him to put him to death. And then the hands of all the people. So if you're accusing somebody, you need to be the one to throw that first stone. You need to be the one to kill them. 
Where Deuteronomy 17, 7 says, The witnesses' hands are be the first in putting them to death, and after that, the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from you. So he's calling them out and saying, Okay, whoever has legitimate cause, a case against them, go ahead, pick up a stone, and chuck it at them. Right? And then we'll just, everyone will just join in. But even by this time, so the commentators are thinking that even by this time, the old law, so that Old Testament law, was probably not very popular. Nobody actually wants to do that. Nobody actually wants to sit there and throw stones at people. Now, they do stone Stephen in Acts, right? So we do know it did happen, but most likely they didn't want to do it. And enforcement of such ethical standards by severe punishment patterns was quite slight at the best. So again, they're picking and choosing what laws to follow, what laws not to which is fine because, again, it's their law. They don't have to punish them that way necessarily. And then, though, also, given the room and jurisdiction and capital matters, right, so this is a death sentence, essentially, it's much easier to sue for a Jewish divorce than to break the Roman peace directive in a mob violence, right? They didn't want the Romans to come and crack down on them. Because if you've seen the, 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 the Chosen or some other movies that, that portray these things, right? There are Roman soldiers like floating around in the streets all the time hanging out. So they're all there making sure people are legitimate. This is a big festival, so they have more people probably. They'd, anytime a crowd gathers, you know, the, you know the authorities are going to show up in case something gets, gets out of hand. So they didn't want to risk having their heads broken open by the Roman swords and fists just for this. Right. So they weren't super serious. And so the ruse had run out, though. Right. The Pharisees and the scribes thought that Jesus would fall for this trick one way or another. And there was not going to be a need for bloodshed. Right? If Jesus had said to her, stone her, they would have been able to stop it. Say, whoa, 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 we're not going to do that. We don't need to kill her. She's, she's innocent. Let's not do this, right? Or, and then they would have, had, they would have been the heroes. They had no stomach, though, for making themselves look bad. So they could not do anything but walk away. And so we see this one by one. The older guys are probably the ones who get it first, and they're the ones who are maybe a little more level-headed. And you're like, all right, we're, he's right. We're, we need to get here. The younger guys are probably a little more like, let's fight. You know, those of us who are younger, we know that, like, yeah. Then we get a little older, like, wait a minute. I don't have enough energy for that. Yeah. But the one who had come... Those who had come to catch the outlaw had become the outlaws. Mm-hmm. Right? And they left in shame. And so Jesus finally stands up and is like, oh. And he, he can see, right? If you're down, you can still see. And you know people are leaving. But he looks up. He's like, oh, they're all gone? And you're still here? You didn't get stoned? You're still alive? Huh, imagine that. They didn't kill you? Again, he knew all along what was going to happen or what wasn't going to happen. But... It's an interesting statement that he makes. And so she says, no, nobody did anything. They're all gone, sir. And the, and the word here, Lord, mostly, most likely implies like a sir, not a Lord, like she's proclaiming he's the Lord. So just, it's the same word. It's like Senor in Spanish. It's, it could be either one, right? It's to say either sir or the Lord. <clears throat> and so Jesus gives this final statement, which I think many people and believers, non-believers alike, forget. Right, so Jesus tells the woman, he does not condemn her either. Right, and a lot of people like to stop there. Ha ha! We're all done. No, wait, wait, there's another phrase. Go now and do not sin anymore. So he's already indicted the Pharisees and the scribes. 
But now he's indicting her. He's accusing her and he's telling her, like, I know that you're guilty. So she most likely was caught in the, you know, she was caught in the act of adultery. She was doing it. She was guilty. So he's saying, look, you're forgiven, but stop doing it. And so it's important. It's important we have that part of it. Because he says, look, you're guilty. And so the, the original language is a little more accurate and says, go now and leave your life of sin. So here's the application. That you must repent and you must change your ways. But that's all, it's all about this. It's all about this. And so Acts 3.19 says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. And Jesus doesn't ask if, he, if he's guilty, if she's guilty. He already knows it. But he extends his hand so that he and she can leave her life of sin. And he does the same thing for us. He does it so we can leave this life of sin. We should not want to do this anymore because then we are new creations. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. So he wants you to have a new life in him. You are a new creation made in Christ's image. Because Jesus has the right to forgive. He has the right, he has the authority. And that act of forgiveness is part of the healing. He is God that can absolve you of your sins, and He did that on the cross. He paid for those on your cross. So what does that mean for us? If we are saved and we are truly repentant, each of us do not need to feel guilty anymore for our past selves. That person is dead. If you've been baptized, you see baptisms, right? You are, the whole point of it is that you are buried your old self is buried, you're in the ground, and the new person who comes out of the water is a new person. I get it, it's hard. We don't change our name. We don't become a new, we don't get a new ID card or whatever else. But spiritually, we are new people. Again, we need to repent. We should make amends. We need to repair the damage, unfortunately. And that's where the problem comes in because people want to hold us and make us be and feel guilty. We make ourselves feel guilty with whatever consequences there are that we may have caused in our previous life. So we have to deal with that. But God works on you as much as He does work on the other person. So it may take a while for the other person to understand that you're a new person and you don't hopefully do those things anymore. Right? You didn't have to go to jail because Jesus paid for that debt. He paid that for you. So... You know, you've already been automatically rehabbed in a sense. And so here it is that God is working on those other people. So it may take a while for that other person or people to respond to the Holy Spirit's prompts and convert, but you can't control that. The only thing you can control is you, and we all have enough problems to kind of control ourselves, right? Keep ourselves going. So, so we don't need to worry about what everybody else thinks, because if you know you're right with God, then that's it. That's all you need. Because what you can't control is what you focus on. So seeing ourselves as God sees us, a forgiven human being who has been remade and restored. And that is all part of our justification and sanctification process, right? We are constantly being remade every single day. That's our sanctification process until we die and we become glorified in heaven. That is what Jesus has done for us. And so, wrapping it up. Jesus was the only one who was technically not an outlaw. 
Right? Even the Pharisees, even though the Pharisees saw it differently, they were trying to trap him. They, were, they saw him as the lawbreaker. They also used another lawbreaker to try to trap him. And so going back to the beginning part, the Robert the Bruce, right, the king of the Scots, he outlasted the king of England who died on the road looking for him. They were on the road up through Scotland from England to try to you know, pick a fight, basically, and find him and kill him or at least arrest him. And then, then Robert the Bruce beat his son, Edward II, and they reclaimed independence, at least for a little while. And so Bruce was no more an outlaw than Jesus was in the respect that they both had the authority to act as king. Right? And that's important for us to understand. Jesus is the king. He's the one who has the authority to do all these things that he's doing in the Bible. And so, when we become followers of Jesus, we are no longer outlaws of God either, right? Because we are following the king. But what happens is we become outlaws in man's eyes a lot of times, right? Because we should be different than the world in many respects. So, all of a sudden... Oh, you think you're better than me? You're righteous? Who doesn't have the stone? You without sin, throw the stone, right? That's, that's what people throw back at us and say, well, wait a minute. But I've been forgiven and I'm not sinning anymore. So that's where it is. So the question at the end of this is, is which person or party are you more worried about upsetting? King of the universe? Or a man who is not even a king of his own household? Right? Who, who are you worried about upsetting in your life? And that should help drive you on how we live our lives, not because it's following the rules or not, but it's about following God and knowing that we are forgiven. And we do so because we're forgiven. And we have this choice, and He paid for us to be able to make that decision. So as the band comes up, right, think about this this week, about, about this story, about how it all works, how it has an effect on our lives, and how we treat other people when we're trying to trap God if we are trying to do that.